Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Story podcast, WTS 200, and, Mero, what, what's your guess? 80. Uh, no, you're close. You're close. I'll give you that. 278. Graham, show me, Sugsy. 278. How are you, Graham? I feel like I feel like we're in the two seventies for ages. I'm great, Daniel. How are you? Uh, I'm good. You, you, your, your internet. Are you on the Starbucks Wi-Fi? Are you? <laughs> no, is it? It sounds a bit wobbly. Yeah, we're grand. We'll, we'll, we'll persevere. Uh, yeah. So this is two seventy eight. And it does feel like we've been in the two seventies for ages. But I think it's because we've had lots of gaps in between, and we've been fluttering about, and you know, securing guests is hard these days. And then you were away, and I was away, and we were away with the fairies or whatever you want to say but anyway look we're here and we're getting through them and we'll have a few more this way to Christmas and everything before we take another break so it's all good it's A1 am I am I better no no you're frozen completely now can't hear you at all this is fantastic for the listeners it says my internet connection is unstable yeah it seems like it it's dev this is what you get for robbing your neighbour's Wi-Fi gram <laughs> Um, yeah, how you were in Boston? How was Boston? Boston was magnificent. I'm still at war with Aer Lingus. Oh, go uh, on, tell everyone. Yeah, so uh, everything went great. We were um, we were heading off and uh, we got through the airport and everything. And in fairness to Dublin Airport, for all the shite that went on during the summer and everything else that you know, the queues, and, Dublin Airport was a dream. Everything just breezed through it, no hassle at all. Fantastic, great. We got onto the airplane, sitting on the airplane, and uh, nothing's happening. And we were due to take off. It was about, I think it was either four, half four or four or something like that. We were due to take off. Right. And at about half five, we're sitting on the plane an hour. The pilot eventually comes on, or the captain or whatever, comes on the intercom, and he says, uh, there seems to be a small issue. We're just getting a look that uh, hopefully we'll have everybody away very shortly. Sorry for delay. All right. Fair enough. Right, I'd rather you check the plane as safe before you go up into the sky. That's not something I want to experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, sitting there for another hour, no updates. Gets to about, and at this point I'm starving, I'm lepping as well. Like, So I'm, I'm on the domino saying, any chance you can drop something to the, to the runway here? Like, so yeah. <laughs> This is fucking brutal. You obviously uh, didn't. No, they didn't, unfortunately. Uh, we're, we're at 7 o'clock or after 7 o'clock and we're told we're going to disembark the airplane. That the plane has a buckled wheel and it wouldn't be safe to take off or land. Uh, So we were all told we're going to disembark. They're bringing in another plane. They're going to transfer all our bags over. We'll be put on the new plane. And we're very sorry for the delay, but you'll be shipping shipping off to Boston very soon. So we're off. Shipping up to Boston. uh. Uh, So... Anyway, back into the airport we go. Nobody from Aer Lingus around in the airport. We're all standing around going, what is going on? There's no mentioned there's no anything of here lads go get a sandwich or here's some water here's some drinks there's no anything we're all you know 300 odd 400 of us or whatever standing around looking at each other going does anybody know what's going on eventually uh an airport not an Air Lingus employee an airport employee sees what is a very large crowd of people standing in one spot and he goes are you the Air Lingus Boston people like yeah oh, your gate is and whatever number it was so all of us proceed to head up to that gate Still nobody from Aer Lingus around at this point. So we're now at about half eight. We're off the plane about an hour at this point. 
and eventually somebody from Aerolingus appears at the little computer thingy that was be beside the gate. So people start approaching, saying, "Any up? What's going on?" Like yeah, ten or fifteen minutes, we should have a better idea what's happening. That's grand the first time you hear it. It's even all right the second time you hear it. But we're now after nine o'clock in the evening, and any time anyone approaches, all they're saying is ten or fifteen minutes, and I'll have an update for you. We're now at ten o'clock, and what was you know, a steady stream of one person at a time going up to this little desk to ask the people wearing the Aer Lingus uniform what's happening. It's now a small crowd has gathered and they're getting angrier and angrier because all they're being told is 10 or 15 minutes we'll have an update. There's no announcement over the intercom. There's nobody checking if people are all right. There's no offer of food, drink, anything, right? Or at least if there Where's was... the cabin crew at this stage? Well, this is... We don't know, right? So, like... We, there's literally nobody around, right? So we're coming up to 11 o'clock and the, the, the lights on the airplane that was brought, we can see the airplane, it's there, it's at the end of the gate. The lights on that airplane turn off and instantly <laughs> the mood amongst the crowd sours, right? Everyone Dang. is like, the fuck just happened? Why did the, why is that, why the lights, why it's gone dark? What's going on? Um, So again, people start saying listen lads what's happening here like people are missing connecting flights people have travel arrangements people have all sorts going on here you need to give us an update if we're staying in a hotel we need to be able to contact the hotel to tell them how delayed we are so that they don't give our fucking room away all this kind of stuff 10 or 15 minutes will no more say Aer Lingus right so at this point one particular American who was very disgruntled became extremely angry shall we say an right. airport police arrived shortly You're after. Joking. Right. And as soon, and I'm not messing with you, Graham, as soon as airport police arrived down and were standing beside the people wearing Aer Lingus uniforms, suddenly the tannoy, suddenly the intercom bursts into life. And the announcement that rings out is, ladies and gentlemen, of Aer Lingus flight, EI, XYZ, whatever it was, we we're to get to inform you, this flight is being cancelled. Please proceed to baggage claim to collect your bags. And we're sorry for the... And that's it. That's all the information we're giving. So there's fucking murder in the airport. Uh, the only information we are given was if you go on to airlingus.com and rebook your flight, keep the receipt so you can get your money back. We checked. It would have cost myself in cubes about two and a half grand to book flights <laughs> again because it's so short notice like. Hey, I just booked them for the crack anyway. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, an absolute fucking shit show. Uh, four hours on the phone to Aer Lingus that night trying to arrange alternative flights where they were saying, um, and can you give me your credit card details? I said, absolutely cannot. You've cancelled this flight. You have a responsibility here, folks. Um, so that went back and forth. They were trying to send us to Miami. They were trying to send us to New York. They were trying to, <laughs> anywhere above fucking Boston where we needed to be, like. Well, were they trying to upsell you at different de- destinations? No, it was like, oh, we can get you on a flight to Miami. And then once we get you to Miami, we'll get you a flight to Boston. And I was like, no. like, <laughs> I'm not landing in Miami with absolutely nothing for you to turn around and go, oh, the next flight to Boston is like the next day. So, yeah, it was, a, it was an absolute mess. Like, uh, Eventually, somebody from Aer Lingus appeared then with this A4 sheet of paper. Uh, and all that I had on it was a phone number for the call center. Everyone who was on that flight was already onto this phone number trying to arrange new travel. Like, so an absolute mess. And we're two and a half weeks beyond that. And despite me contacting Aer Lingus several times, I still have absolutely no update 
on the complaint I put in and everything. We eventually did get to Boston, to be fair. We eventually did. We got new flight the following yeah. day. So we arrived about 36 hours after we should have. Well, you didn't, you didn't have to fork out any more money, did you? Absolutely not. No, I caused murder with them. And still, I am causing murder because like, we, we, we missed a day and a half of our honeymoon, essentially. You know? So what are you looking for often now? Uh, well, by law, if your flight is delayed by more than six hours, which ours was, or if it's cancelled with less than 14 days notice, you are entitled to compensation. So I've told them, I want that compensation, plus the compensation we missed for having to pay for a hotel that we didn't get to stay in, plus uh, the events that we missed on the Sunday that we had booked because, well, we didn't take off until Sunday evening, Irish time. So Did you have to, uh, you have to book a new hotel? No, no. In fairness to the hotel, uh, the Godfrey Hotel in Boston, a lovely hotel for anyone looking to go to Boston. Give it a look. Um, I rang them initially saying, look, we're, we're mad delayed. We don't know what's happening. They were like, no problem. We'll put you down for a late check-in. Um, so long as it's before 3 a.m. Boston time, you should be fine. It's grand. <laughs> uh, at a half 11 at night then, I had to ring them. I have 11 Irish time. Um, I had to ring them to be like, uh, yeah, so our flight's been cancelled. Uh, now we're still hoping to travel on Sunday. But, and they were like, okay, well, look, you know, we won't give your room away, but you'll still have to pay for the first night. But can you ring us and tell us if your plans change so that we can put the room yeah. available? I was like, that's completely understandable. Yeah. And yeah, look, fair enough. Like we, we booked it based on the thing of we'd stay for seven or eight nights or whatever it was. So, yep. All right. Look, I'll be hitting me travel insurance on Aer Lingus to sort out missing the hotel that night. Like, but it's honestly the worst customer service I have ever encountered. And I was an air you've customer. Got no response at all. No. I have literally the only response that I've managed to get is whenever I tweet them and I'm like, lads. What's going on? And at that, it's a generic response saying, hi, Danny, we're sorry to hear this. Can you DM us to let us know what's happening and we'll look into this further? And I'm like, just look at the fucking thread of tweets I have just tagged you in. Like, come on. I rang them, nothing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's an absolute mess. It's like, I mean, I was an air customer for years and they for a long time have been told us the worst customer service ever. But I, I can, Tell you this much, I and normally speaking, I'd be the person who's like, book Aer Lingus, just book Aer Lingus. They'll never let you down. You know the the stewardesses are like an Irish mammy. Yeah. After this, I feel like I take my chances hitching a ride with a migrating fucking goose before I get them on their planes. <laughs> because, because honest to Jesus, man, would you not go back to Aer Lingus? At this moment in time, no. I'm pure. It's purely the customer service because if something goes wrong. I, feel, yeah. I honestly feel as though Ryanair would have this resolved by now because they just want rid of you. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas Aer Lingus... Like, happily, has your email not even been acknowledged? No, nothing. Like, abs- at the time at time of recording this, I have now sent, right, so I've, I've rang them three times, excluding ringing them to, to get a new flight. So I've rang them three times. Uh, I have been... When you, when you log an official complaint, you get an automatic response, which gives you a complaint reference number. So yeah. I've logged my official complaint. I logged that while I was sitting in the airport on Sunday waiting for my new flight. Uh, came home in Boston, left it a few days, said, right, still haven't heard anything. So I sent another one with my complaint reference number, uploading receipts and documents and all that kind of crack. Still haven't heard anything. And as of today, we are 17 days removed from the first complaint. 
and not even a we're sorry we're looking into this please bear with us Look, I mean fucking silence get on to the ombudsman or something yeah I, I mean I'll do what all those people do and threaten Joe Duffy yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, next. Talk to Joe. So that is a long intro for me just to vent my anger. But you had a good trip anyway. That was your honeymoon. Oh, man, amazing. Boston's class. I'm sure like lots of people have been in Boston and everything else, but it was deadly. I got to go to an NBA match. We went whale watching. Got to eat food that I haven't eaten in months. I was just going to say, how how did how was the whole diet um, over there? Like... I'm, did the portions allow did it allow you to eat or I mean look it's America the portions are stupid like they're actually so I mean every every single place you went to eat like food was sent back because it was like what are you what are you trying to feed a family of seven come on you know yeah, well, I was away with Danny many times in America and the food was never sent back so it's is true. this the new Danny it's true yeah it is yeah yeah beforehand I was like a fucking garbage disposal I was like yeah deadly <laughs> but um. Yeah, like, I mean, everything, like, even we went to this burger place and honestly, got like, it's one of the nicest burgers I've ever eaten in my life. But, oh, yeah, send me a pick. But, I mean, the, the amount of food they bring out, like, but, you know, we asked for it. So, Cubes is getting a bit, I was getting a burger, so the burger comes with fries. And Cubes is like, if I get an onion rings, will you split the onion rings with me? And I was like, well, I'll have one or two. I don't think I'll be able to, if I'm eating the burger, the burger's going to fill me. So, you'll be eating my chips, like, it's just a grand no butter. Yeah, it felt like a fucking 20 kilo sack of onions had just been diced up to make these onion rings. It was stacked on the plate, man. It was like, do you know, when you see those tower of pancakes, it was that, but onion yeah. rings, like, it was insane. I was like, no oh, yeah, lads. um, Mr. Bartley's Burger Cottage for anybody that's ever going to Boston, it's so it's across the road from Harvard and it's fucking well worked, it's unreal, but yeah, unreal, loved it, deadly. Yeah. Do you have a Boston cream? A Boston cream pie, Graham. Boston cream donut. Uh, no, it's a, it's a Boston cream pie, and I have laughed at that every single time. Uh, did I? No, I didn't. Cubes did have one, and I tried a little bit of it, and it was absolutely lovely. But I didn't. I dessert some struggling with, which is disappointing for me because I love a dessert. Oh, no. But, Sorry, um, apologies. No, you're grand. You're grand. Um, so I did try a little bit, and she also, what? She, yeah, she got a dessert somewhere else. Well, it wasn't dessert. It was more of a pastry type thing. And I had a bit of that. And it was fucking unreal. Desserts in America, they know what they're doing. Yeah, 90% sugar, that's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, that's enough waffling out of me and everything else. Uh, Boston was class. Godfrey Hotel as well, worth a look. And uh, their public transport is fucking unbelievable. Yeah, I was in oh. Sweden for a few days and the public transport was absolutely sensational. It's mad how we just accept a substandard of absolutely everything in Ireland, isn't it? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great country, except for anything that is a service provision through the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you're over there and you're kind of going, why, why can't we have this in Ireland? Like, yeah. what's stopping us from having this accessible train, this accessible subway, this accessible desk counter in a shop that lowers down to my height? Yeah. These toilets, like even if the, the wheelchair accessible toilet, even if someone was in it, the male cubicles were big enough for my wheelchair to go in. In a pub. <laughs> like, come on. like yeah, in, in Ireland, you know, if you're lucky enough to see a wheelchair toilet in a pub, it's usually a storage room. 
Exactly. Which is just absolute. Yeah. Anyone, anyone that's listening that works in an establishment where your uh, wheelchair toilet doubles up as a place to store boxes or store kegs or store, a, have a word with the manager and tell them to cop the fuck on, please. There was, a, there's a pub in the city, in Dublin City, that's 90s themed. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. And I know someone recently who asked a member of staff, do they have a wheelchair toilet? And the response was, there was no wheelchair toilets in the 90s. You messing? No. Now, he thought mm-hmm. he, the per- he or she thought they were funny, but like they were being sarcastic as such. But that's what the response was. Um, I, do you know what, right? Even if that was somebody trying to be the funny lad, I'd have went through everything in that bar to be like, that wasn't in the fucking 90s. Sorry, sorry. He uh, he he said uh, people weren't disabled back in the nineties. You mess ah here now. And he said then he also said he'll get a petition to get it updated. So it was tongue in cheek, and he was trying to the person was trying to be funny, but like that's not how you know about doing it. This fucker probably logged into the Wi-Fi on his fucking smartphone. None of them existed in the nineties, but you're using them, you prick. Anyway, exactly. So anyway, I'm not I'm not um, encouraging any bad publicity against said establishment. I'm just stating uh, an anecdotal story about said pub. Anyway, our guest this week. Yes. Um, uh, we got finally after a couple of maybe weeks of trying. Um, we got author of gaffs. Why no one? Uh, why no one can get a house, and what we can do about it. Um, he's also an associate professor and he's the host of the Re- Reboot Republic podcast. It's Rory Hearn. Rory, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I- I'm very good. They- they'd let anyone do a podcast these days, wouldn't they? Yeah. The fact that we're doing this about seven years is, is testament to that. Yeah, nobody has told us to, sh- well, they have told us to shut up, to be fair. We're, we're, we're going into our eighth year and nobody has got rid of us. Yeah. No. But I wasn't talking about you. So I was talking all about right. me. All right. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you, you, Rory, as I said, in the, I was saying the intro, right? You're a presenter of your own podcast. You're associate uh, professor. Um, you're now an author as well. Well, you've authored a lot of stuff, I suppose, uh, academically as well over the years. But you're a big deal. A big deal. Um, uh, I, I don't know what to say to that now. You flattered me into silence. <laughs> Modest. Um, Modesty, yeah, yeah. I just go really red and cringe. And, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I'm all that and more. Would you and believe? More. Um, the book now, Gaffs, uh, why no one can get a house and what we can do about it. Has that been on the radar for a while to publish? Um, it's something that I was working on for quite a while, all right. Um, you know, people have been obviously living the housing crisis for many years now, but I, I probably have been one of the people who've been researching and looking at it for since it started. Kind of, I call it this phase of the housing crisis because, in many ways, Ireland has been in a housing crisis for almost twenty years. You know, if you go back to the Celtic Tiger crash and everything, and even during that kind of where I started, um. I worked in a place called Dolphin House in Dolphin's Barn. Some people might know it. It's um, 
between close to, I don't know how would you describe in terms of the, between Inchicore and the Coombe Hospital um, and its social housing flats. And I worked there for about five years from 2007. Um, and it was interesting. I started there at the height of the Celtic Tiger and it was social housing. Um, and there was terrible conditions in some of the flats, um, mold and damp and all sorts of stuff that the council was essentially neglecting. And so they were living a housing crisis in the middle of the biggest housing boom. Um, but in a way, the kind of... Um, so I've been looking at it for quite a while, researching, but also, I suppose, as someone who, called, you know, a campaigner around it, um, particularly since probably 2014, 2015. So we're now seven years when I met the first kind of homeless families um, with children who came to me and I was involved in highlighting the housing issues that were emerging and said, you know, that they were living in hotels and, you know, seeing those young children with their, you know, going to school from hotel rooms and stuff like that. I was like, this is wrong. Like, this is there's something going on here. And um, so I wrote the book Housing Shock in 2020. Um, that was, I suppose, what you might call an academic book. Like it was very full of stats, full of, um, a lot of, I suppose, theory as well. And, and then when the investor fund bought that um, estate out in Maynooth, people might remember kind of middle of last year, and there was a huge yeah. reaction to that. People were just going, you know, we've had enough. COVID came along and people thought that maybe rents might fall, you know, that uh, house prices might fall, something might happen. But no, it just got worse. And um Harper Collins approached me with publishers and said, would I be interested? They'd seen me on primetime where I was taking on the, um, these guys called institutional property investors and saying, you know, that they weren't the future, that they weren't the solution and that we needed government to build homes, affordable homes that people actually afford. Um, and Harper Collins approached me and said, would I be interested in writing a book on, and I said, I absolutely would. I have a lot to say. And then I went and wrote it. So in some ways, it's the culmination of years and years of work and campaigning. Experience. Experience, yeah. Yeah, so. The appearance on Primetime as well was brilliant as well. I thought, I thought, like, you're so confident. Uh, and as, as well, recently you were on, what's the revamp show? Apologies, the Monday Monday night, is it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, When you're going into those shows to, sp to, to speak so publicly and to, to be an advocate uh, like do you feel like especially you know mainstream sort of uh, television do you think is it an uphill battle like sometimes yeah like I'd be I'd be shitting it before I'd go on you know <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was trying to ask yeah yeah <laughs> Um, no, you would be, you know, and like, you know, it's very hard when you go on there and the, and the TV, you know, there's only you. It's, it's mad. They're weird places. You know, there's the studio and you, you go out there and there's, you know, a little desk and you sit at the desk with, two, with the interviewer and someone else you're discussing it with. And there's just three and like the cameras are kind of off in the distance and it's so surreal. And you're just waiting and the presenter will turn to you and you just feel like thousands of people are looking at you, even though they're not there. Um, and you're like, don't fuck up, don't fuck up. And, you know, you have your points in your head you're trying to make and, you know, your palms are sweaty and you're going, I hope my pits aren't showing and there is sweats coming through the shirt. <laughs> it's, you know, I, it's, it's, um, there are nerve wracking experiences, but um, 
I think in time, like when I look at it, I used to get more hassle in terms of people be much more skeptical, skeptical of what I was saying before. Um, but now, obviously, given the crisis has, has got so bad and what I said was going to happen has happened, people are listening to me. And a lot of people in the media are affected by it as well. So I find um, the media being a lot more receptive um, than they were. But it's still, yeah, it's nerve-wracking stuff. And it's uh, you just try and hold... You always tell yourself there's only you and the other two people in the room and that's it. There's no one actually watching it. Actually, like my podcast where there's no one actually listening, you know? Wouldn't say that. <laughs> You, no, there's not. It's not true. I have lots of lovely listeners, and I know you do too. Very loyal ones too. So they'd, be, they'd yeah, kill they, me if I said that. They can get very protective, uh, which which is nice in a way, but also frightening. Um, do like do do you feel? I know you said kind of you're shitting or whatever, but do you feel like there's almost a pressure in a way that kind of you know like your your voice is one of the ones that people do stop and listen to. So when you appeared on Prime Time or when you appeared on radio or, or in your podcast or whatever that people actually take note and I've I've heard just like in conversations I've had with people they'd be like your man Rory your hearing's after saying blah 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 and people will quote what you've said do, do you feel kind of like a pressure almost to be making sure people are aware of the reality of Ireland's health and crisis yeah I do and there's probably two things in that um one is that I'm very very conscious that I know people are listening um, and I am very conscious that in what I say, um, and obviously as an academic, do you know what I mean? You have to be, you know, stand yes. over what you say. You're not just spouting shite from, you know, whatever comes into your mind. You actually have to, you know, research it and look for evidence and think about it. Does this make sense? But I am very conscious that people do listen to me, and that does put a pressure on me in a sense that I can't just say whatever I want or say whatever I think. You know, I have to have thought through properly and, um, and sometimes there's things you'd like to say uh, and call people that you can't <laughs> because, you know, you're supposed to be at some level uh, respectable or whatever. But um, but there is that other pressure. Absolutely. And I feel it. I feel it all the time, if I'm honest, in terms yeah. of trying to um, get across to people what's happening. And it was interesting. My wife said to me last night, she goes, you're sharing a lot of those um, rental stuff on Instagram, aren't you? And she's going, do people want to see that? And I was like, well, whether they do or they don't, I think they should. Yeah. And, I, you know, I do feel and, you know, she was only joking with me, do you know what I mean? Winding me yeah. up. She knows exactly what I'm like and that I'm never going to stop. <laughs> uh, but uh, that um, I suppose I've always connected with it. I've connected with it for different reasons. Um, you know, like I, as I've talked about before, you know, I grew up in the private rental sector for the first 10 years of my life. We had to move house. Um, because the landlord was was selling, you know, the landlord didn't wasn't great at times. And, you know, when I, I look back and I kind of see that did influence me in terms of how I thought about stuff. But I always, you know, my mom had values, strong values of social justice. So I always she nurtured in, in me an empathy towards other people, a care for other people beyond just yourself. And that in many ways, that's the purpose of, of our lives is to be concerned about other people and to be trying to make things better. And it might sound very you know, airy-fairy in the sense of, um, you know, ideal and, you know, this is something that, um, you know, only kind of, you know, dreamers and, and would think about or take an approach or often criticized even an article recently um, as being utopian, you know, like just thinking about some 
imaginary world that would never actually happen you know that uh, like like a scandinavian utopia or something like exactly that. exactly like some place so what are you doing talking about those ideas that'll never happen here but i think that i've always felt that um i suppose a, a responsibility and a connection with people who are suffering and who have been discriminated who have been excluded who are being left behind i've always had an affinity with those people and wanting to work with them and wanting to and so i suppose in the housing thing then it has become so bad and so many people contact me all the time you know you know with like stories and situations and that you're just like my heart breaks it honestly breaks for people and going this is not right like it's not right that you've children growing up in homelessness that they spend one day in an emergency accommodation not to mind six months or two years Um, and you have a generation, you know, your generation who are talking, who are not just talking, but are emigrating, you know, see no future, going, what the hell are we doing? And I, you know, I feel for that. And I, and I think it's important to feel for that. And so I suppose I do feel that pressure to give you an hour long answer to a short question. And you <laughs> yeah. might notice I have a bit of a tendency towards that. So it's you better right. start intervening. That, that's, that's perfect. It's, it's, you were saying. Sorry, man, one. Yeah, no, I was just I just want to pick up on what you were saying there. You were raised kind of with a bit of social empathy and kind of the lived experience there of the private rental sector. Do you think like do you think there's a there's a lack of that uh, decision making level in terms of lived experience and, and empathy? Because if we're saying and it is housing is a, is a social right, but the people that are making like the Minister for Housing, the people Daryl Brain and and people before him, it, it, do they have they 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 appear to have a lack of political will to make this happen? I mean, I've saw you, I've seen you tweet loads about this um rainy day two billion dollar uh, fund that that's there for January February. What is there a lack of political will to say give us that two billion and we'll build what you're referring to, like? Do they have a lack of lived experience, lack of social empathy for these things? What will make them? What will depend? What will take for the penny to drop? Like, yeah, it's a low question, but I'm just a bit. No, no, no. I think it's a very important one. On, on some level, I do, and I said this, you know, and I've come to this conclusion that some of them don't care and don't have empathy, without a doubt. Um, yeah. and I do think that's part of the problem that they don't have lived experience either, and they haven't spent time with those who are homeless. Or, and I mean time as in, you know, someone was saying to me the other day, they'd love, you know, get Leo Radker to go live with an emergency accommodation for two weeks and see how he might think about things. And people would laugh about that, you know, and say, ah, that's ridiculous. But actually, on a certain level, it's not. Because you don't see things until you get down with people and actually spend time. And there is, you know, that's if you haven't experienced at some level, you know, poverty or inequality, um, you know, that life experience that you refer to, but you can see things more if you spend time with people who are experiencing it. And I do think there's a disconnect around that, um, a lack of understanding, a lack of empathy, a huge lack of empathy. Um, and, you know, the, the, and part of it, though, is as well as who surrounds them, you know, the policy decisions that they make, you know, who has their ear, the investor funds, the big developers, the landlords, it's like they're who they listen to. And there's this idea, and, and there's a prejudice as well, you know, that they, they see, look at homeless people and go, ah, in their heads, there was something that person did, you know, that wasn't yeah. really our policy that caused that. That was something that person did. 
Um, young people are just bloody ungrateful snowflakes, you know, they haven't a clue how to save. And that's the reason they're not into it, you know, or not, you know, getting themselves on the property ladder. And there's all the, it's almost like these excuses to justify. The, get a loan uh, off daddy. Huh? Get it. Remember Varadkar said in the doll, get a loan yeah, off Yeah, that's that. You know, he said, I, you know, I had to borrow money off my parents and that. And, you know, and you're going, that's not what most people can do. So I do, I think there is a big issue with that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's alarming that it takes kind of, you know, social media accounts like, like yours and Kieran McQueen, who runs the crazy house prices at Instagram and, and Twitter and whatever, that these accounts bring more attention to what is wrong and, and kind of what needs to be resolved. And then you see people and it's, it's something you as an academic as well. And obviously you know a lot more about this than I would Rory, but the whole thing of the connection between the terrible renting landscape in Ireland and the number of landlords that are in Leinster House. And it's, I'm sure there's plenty of good landlords, you know, but equally it's kind of hard to ignore the figures and kind of hard to ignore the fact that we've seen how many of them in the last number of months have to declare numerous properties that they'd forgotten and all this kind of thing. It just, it's beggar's belief that these people want to do more for people who need more. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. And, and I think, again, it's not just that they might personally benefit, you know, and there is that. They definitely are. Some of them are personally benefiting from the way policy has gone. Um, you know, and kind of I analyze that in the book. Um, Gaffs, plug, another plug, gaffs. Um, <laughs> Plugs in. Uh, Unpost the award nominee. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Cheers for the tweet on that. That was, uh, I appreciate that. Um, no, uh, no, I, I do actually write about that in the book. Um, I kind of go through the last 10 years and how rents were rising from kind of 2013, 2013, 2014. You could see rents rising. Um, and back then, myself and others were highlighting that rents should have been controlled. And I remember the first rent control wasn't brought in until 2016 three years after they had risen and they were rising significantly. And, and even the control they brought in was a 4% per year cap. And you're going, how is that? 4% a year is not a cap. Like that's not a control on rents. Um, and I remember at the time, like I actually was on, on national media and on, on, it was RT drive time. And I remember when the, the measure was introduced and they asked me, what did they think of it? And I said, there was no justification for the 4% rate. I said, I, there's no evidence been provided. They provided no evidence for why they went for 4%. The only evidence that was ever given was that investor funds kind of internationally look for about a 4% return on their investment. So this was essentially, you know, the government policy and, and an investor fund probably did, didn't say to government put in a 4%, but government would just go, look, this is who we're making decisions for. They didn't care about the tenants or the, you know, renters who were experiencing that. They weren't thinking about them. Um, and so I do think that it's not just they personally benefited. It's also kind of how they see and saw, in particular in those years, like I really put those years kind of 2013 to 20, kind of 21 were the real years that we, they fucked things up and they, you know, they made such bad decisions that were in the interests of, the investor funds and landlords very clearly. And they weren't thinking, you know, they, their whole idea, you know, and I talk a lot about this um, 
you know, young people will be happy renting. Sure, they're all, you know, you guys are, you know, delight. You just, you don't want to own a property, do you? You don't want to own a home. You just happy rent and sit around like, and you're going, yeah, maybe for three or four years. But what happens when you want a family and you want a relationship or, you know, you want to live on your own and not have to, you know, <laughs> discuss with two other strangers, what are we putting in the fridge and what labels are we putting <laughs> on the fridge or, or with your parents, you know, what time am I home tonight? I'm 32. I don't have to tell you what time I'm home tonight. But like, this is the reality. And um, I do think that some really, really bad policies were made then in the interest of landlords and investors, not necessarily because the politicians directly benefited, because that was the way they thought about things. Mad is Rory, when, when did the, you, you know, I was over in uh, Sweden last week, um, uh, a football match, but I was speaking to Who was playing? Friend. Shamrock Rovers and Joe Gardens in very Euro good. Are they are they near uh, Trees' Gardens? <laughs> oh, Merrill Gardens. <laughs> oh, there you go. I was gonna say Merrill throws in disgust. <laughs> I think it well, did. My, the joke was yeah, so funny. Um, my friend lives over there, she's living there seven years, and uh, just telling me about the process in terms of childcare, in terms of housing, like uh, it's almost like um, Municipal, like a county council thing. Mm. When did it stop in Ireland where we stopped giving the responsibility to council, county councils to build in council estates? Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of goes back to the 1980s, really. Um, we were still building. But it, was that, of- it was working though. Oh, it did. It did. And that's kind of the big kind of one of the big myths or big lies I take on in the book is this idea that council housing didn't work or social housing didn't work. Um, And because that was an ideology, it was a way of thinking that came from Thatcher and existed here as well to a certain extent, which was that, um, you know, social housing just created delinquency and just created like uh, you know, bad families and bad, you know, young people. And, you know, they were failed. And, you know, look at Ballymon, it failed. Look at Fatima Mansions, it failed. And, of course, they didn't fail. It wasn't social housing that failed. It was poverty. It was drugs. It was actually a failure to maintain social housing by the councils that led to uh, significant problems. And also the failure to design estates properly you know you have Killinard and Jobstown that they never put in any services facilities you put some of the poorest people at the most furthest outskirts of Dublin made them more excluded than they already were that it wasn't but what happened was there was an economic downturn and I call this austerity one um in the late 1980s and they cut then the local authorities and that was really kind of where the big cut happened and that's where we really stopped um building council, building uh, council housing. And of course, council housing, you know, Ireland had some of the best housing in Europe in the 1950s and 60s and 70s built by councils. You know, they they either hired private builders or built them themselves. They had the tradespeople. Um, And then it went to turn to the market. And then the 1990s, it was all the Celtic Tiger. You know, councils don't do social housing anymore. And sure, everybody's going to own their own home and they might even own multiple properties because we'll all be property investors. Woohoo. And uh, then, of course, the crash happened. And my big criticism over the last 10 years that they basically never bothered trying to get the councils going again until the last kind of year or so where they're 
making some efforts, but they've a long way to go. But that's kind of yeah, another long giant rambling answer, Graham. Sorry about that. It, it no, seems, it's it, it. It seems like the answers have been so simple for so long in terms of like that council housing worked. You know, social housing worked. I mean, I grew up in a council estate, and like you know, we, we were lucky that there was lots of facilities around us growing up. Yeah. But it, it worked. Brilliant. Loads of us grew up happy, healthy, delighted. Some of us were little shits, some more than others, but we're grand, like. Some of you, you know? still little shits. Exactly, yeah. And just, you know, <laughs> some of us are bigger shits than others. But, <laughs> um, but it, like, it, it worked, you know. I mean, there's this, I think Dave McWilliams made the point before as, as well, you know, interest rates are going up now, but for so long, the cost to borrow was so little. That we could have solved the housing crisis if we borrowed and used that borrowing to build and then affordable housing could have been truly affordable. Like, there's been so many potential answers to this problem. And yet, here we are still discussing housing crisis, still discussing thousands upon thousands of homeless. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, I don't know. No, so, you're right, Danny. You're absolutely right. The, the solutions have been there. Um, and I've pointed them out consistently, and others have as well. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely, I can't remember which he said earlier, about the lack of political will. And I think it does come down to that. It does yeah. come down to that there's not really a drive to take brave and big decisions that would disrupt the interests I talked about earlier, that would mean house prices fall because you want house prices to fall, because you want rents to fall, because you want housing to be bloody affordable. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there and it still are, you know, interest rates are rising and um, that is going to make it harder for people to buy um, yeah. unless prices fall significantly. Hopefully they will. Um, but it is going to mean that, you know, there'll be arguments made. Oh, the government can't borrow as much. But, you know, as, as you were saying earlier that, you know, there's two billion in the rainy day fund going this year, four billion next year. And it's yo-yos, not dollars. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's euros. <laughs> Six billion euros is going in, and you're just. And I've said that. You know, this is like that's madness. You know, there's we could be putting it into a state construction company that I've you know made the case for. You know, setting up that would hire tradespeople that would build the homes. You know, you could contract alongside that private. You know, small builders to build homes as well. Um, there is so much we could do, but it is about political will. And I think, I, I don't know what you think in terms of, you know, your generation, how you're feeling about it. But part of the book was to try and show that, that there are solutions, because I imagine people just must be so despairing. Like you tell me, like, that's, I don't know. Yeah, what but for, you, for years, for years, going on from what Danny's point about, about, about yourself appearing on, on, on the, in the media and stuff, I think, um, you know, some some people won't get involved and kind of like, uh, you know, the opposition don't have the answers or mm. this. But I feel your presence on media has legitimized the actual crisis. Mm. Um, and I feel more people are kind of like referencing, oh, well, she, your man there, the associate professor said this, that and the other, mm. as opposed to people saying, oh, well, Owen, Owen O'Brien said this, that or the other. Do, mm. do you get me? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like, it's almost like, if they say Owen O'Brien is like, oh, geez, they're a Sinn Féin supporter. So they don't want mm. to, they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket. So they legitimize the associate professor. Um, and I think I've seen that over the years as well with economists. Now, albeit it was probably the Langer from Cork that we won't mention, but, <laughs> <laughs> but 
Uh, you're talking about political will there, and I'm going. That's back Roy to, Keane, isn't it? <laughs> no, definitely not Roy. Um, going back to my little trip in in Sweden, there, like I couldn't believe the accessibility. Like I was on the Irlanda, and I asked the information desk, an actual information de- desk on the train. I needed to get a subway, and I said, "I'm just wondering if the subway is wheelchair accessible." Yeah, they looked at me as if I had ten heads. They're like, "Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be?" Yeah. I didn't know myself for three days in, in Stockholm yeah. about the accessibility. And then you're going home and you're kind of going, how come we can't have this in Ireland? Like I was in a shop and I was paying for something, just like a news agent's type shop. And he lowered the shelf down to my level. And yeah. he's smiling as he's doing it because he's yeah. like, this is great. And I'm like, yeah. what the, f-? like there was probably no need for it. But at the same time, it was great. I felt great. Mm. And you're kind of going, they're actually, when you were telling me there that, this year, next year, six billion rainy day fund when housing services, lack of childcare, disability, accessibility, mm. lack of it's it just makes you sick. Like mm. it does. And of course, disability, you know, and I write about this in the book as well. And, and I have ri- written about it before is there's a huge issue around disability and housing, as you know, I'm sure, you know, and like accessibility in private rental, for example is a big issue. Um, and it's part of, you know, kind of why I have criticized the housing assistance payment policy, because we used to build council housing and, you know, council housing and now done by housing associations um, that's being newly developed has to be accessible, you know, in terms of uh, uh, people with disabilities. And it also, um, it, that's what it's supposed to be. And housing should be, and there should be no... Uh, discrimination or inequality um, in terms of housing between people with disabilities and people without. But what we see is actually those who are homeless, disproportionate, a disproportionate number have disabilities, uh, both intellectual and physical. You look at those who are on the housing list, housing list, should I say, for social housing, large number have disability as well. Um, and as I said, the housing assistance payment is kind of the way we provide social housing now which means you get a payment, you have to go into the private rental sector, find somewhere to a landlord to take you on. But for many people with a physical disability, landlords go, well, sure, I don't, I don't have a place that suits you. I'm not taking you. And, and then the, we see them then been made homeless because they can't find a landlord who will take someone on with a disability, even though it's discriminatory and it's against the equality legislation. The landlord just will say, ah, no, I have someone else coming or something like that. And we, that, that's where I kind of call the privatization of what should be a social good or a social right, a social need, which is housing, um, is handed over to the market who just decide, well, I don't like you, I don't want you. And what happens is those who have you know, greater needs or different needs, additional needs, are left out and excluded more. You know? And I just think it, it's wrong. Like housing, we have to see housing... You know, and this is the big, I think, why they're all, you know, a lot of the investors and developers are jumping up and down with me. And I think we have to see housing as a human right. You know, we have to. Like health, Absolutely. like education. And that, you know, it shouldn't be a case of if you have the money or whatever, you get access to it or not, and you're screwed if you don't. It should be, as a country, we should provide housing as a human right. Yeah. And a, a, a fellow I know, actually, um was homeless a wheelchair user and HAP hadn't the local HAP didn't have the suitable um accommodation for him. Yeah. So he spent four four or five months in a travel lodge hotel in Blanchardstown. 
Like just you know, yeah. Like he was approved for HAP, but there was no one in in Dunleary right down County Council. There was no accommodation that yeah. could facil- facilitate him. Like yeah, you know. Yeah. And is it, I've noticed in the new builds and right new and and in Arklow and and stuff like that where they all have downstairs toilets and mm. um, they all have a flat entrance into the house. Yeah, um, it's it's like again, it's easy. Yeah, but it is. It's like. It's like, uh, what, what is it? Someone had said to me, a, a colleague had said that um, a house doesn't have to be, um, it, it, once it's visitable by a person with exactly. disabilities and not habitable, it doesn't have to yeah. be habitable. Like, yeah. how discriminatory is that like? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a big, big issue. And the Irish Wheelchair Association have highlighted that and uh, that the regulations say exactly that it, once a house or apartment or whatever is visible by someone with a wheelchair, but actually internally, it doesn't necessarily have to be, as you say, livable in terms of the size of doors and spaces and that. So it's like, watch it, go visit, but you can't live there. You can't live there. Makes perfect <laughs> sense, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's not what homes are for, are they? <laughs> not for living like, you know, just it's for visiting. like. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And, Sorry, Dan. Do you, do, you do you have any hope um, for the future in terms of change of government or anything that things will get better? Yeah, I suppose I'm very conscious that I don't want to be political in a sense of party yeah. political. Um, mm. And, you know, as I try to present the, you know, my analysis in a, in a, I suppose what you might call non-political way in a sense, but obviously it's, it's very, you know, critical of policy and governments as they have been, um, I think that a change of government offers an opportunity for an election, offers an opportunity for change, for new policies. Um, it clearly does. Um, you know, I think, you know, Sinn Féin's policies around housing are really, really good. I think they're substantially uh, better than our current policies, um, along with Social Democrats as well. I think as well have some very good policies. And of course, you know, People for Profit and others as well, similarly. Um, I think, you know, from what um, they're setting out in their policy, it is more, I think, interventionist and more in line with what I'm proposing than what is currently in place. The, the question, I think, is, is, you know, well, an election could be two years away, is likely to be two years away. Um, there's a lot we can do now, I think, to change policy. Um, if we look at, for example, the government were saying, Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach said, there's no way they were going to bring in an eviction ban again after COVID. They have done it. Um, and I think they're, they know they're under huge pressure. Um, so I think that the more we can get people active on this, the more we can have, like we saw in marriage equality and repeal, um, the water charges, you know, people protesting, people engaging with this, talking about it, saying that there are solutions. The more people demand change, I think this government can even be forced to do things that they mightn't necessarily want to do. Um, and, you know, the vacant property tax is another example. They said they weren't going to introduce it. They did introduce it in the budget. It's not, you know, it's not enough. Um, but it is an example that they know they're under huge pressure to address this. So I think that there's a lot we can do. And I, there's a raise the roof um, protest on, on the 26th of November. That's across civil society groups, NGOs, Focus Ireland, the trade unions. They're all going to be there. You know, so I hope people come out on that. Um, and I, you know, I set up a petition as part of my book as well. People can go over to that as well. It's on Uplift. Um, Gaffs for All is the name of the petition. 
you know, we can talk about it. We can, you know, contact our politicians, contact the government. We can, you know, make noise. We can, there's other things like, for example, um, Okulon is a, is a, a co-housing kind of cooperative and not-for-profit housing developer that is building a for, genuinely affordable housing. You know, people can get involved with those. We can, there is lots we can do. And so I, I suppose I feel that there is hope um, in us changing this. That's where I feel the hope is. If that makes sense, absolutely. Goals. Goals. absolutely I, goals, yeah. I do have a. I do like separately. I have, what has happened since February, um, because the housing crisis hasn't stopped or hasn't got better. It's yeah. actually got worse. And then, um, of course, we um the Ukrainian refugees uh, coming in. My my whole concern was that people that have been on housing lists for X amount of years will then take it out on the Ukrainian refugees yeah. that are now housed in, in all different types of settings. And I think the government as well, they should have a social responsibility to, to educate people. I know it. I find that, that they won't do that because once people are saying, oh, look after the Irish first, then they're not giving out about the actual housing crisis. I, yeah, I... Uh... I've a weird thing with this where I've noticed the number of people commenting this Ireland's full nonsense yeah, I've seen yeah. on social media and it's people exploiting the housing crisis to suit an agenda and it's just it's a shitty thing to do I think but that's just yeah. it is it is and I think it's really dangerous um uh, you know with people see this you know that we know people are exploiting this you know the far right are going around you know the national party and whoever are trying to whip up people's anger about immigration and saying, oh, immigration is the cause of the housing crisis. And they're always at me on social media going, you're not naming the real cause of the crisis, which is the immigrants and all the Ukrainian refugees. And I was like, there was a housing crisis before any Ukrainian refugee came into this country. The real cause of it is government policy. And you look at somewhere like, I know you've covered before in the podcast, like Finland, um, Helsinki, the capital there, you know, they've had huge immigration as well. They don't have a housing crisis like we have. Um, so immigration is not the cause of the housing crisis. It's the failure to plan, the failure to deliver housing by governments. Um, and, you know, it is really, you know, when we look at the level of vacancy and dereliction, you know, there's 166,000 vacant homes. There are tens and tens of thousands of more derelict homes. We could house our homeless um, population here, plus refugees, plus generation rent, you know, times over. In, in the amount of vacant and derelict housing we have. It's, it's the resources and the way we use them um, and our unwillingness to challenge the, the owners of those properties. And um, I think that it, I am really worried about that as well. And it is hard. Um, and I do understand people's frustration because they look at it and say, oh, the government is now building modular homes for refugees and they're, um, you know, they're tackling vacancy in a way that they weren't before. And you know, I, I can say I can see why you would be frustrated by that. Absolutely. You know, you feel abandoned and ignored by your government and, and then they seemingly are responding like this to to others. And I think that we have to challenge that othering that these are, you know, people too who are fleeing war and who need homes as well, just as much as we do. But on the other hand, I think, well, okay, if the government can do this around modular homes and tackling vacancy, let's do it for everybody and let's do it even more. You know, and, and do it, you know, I think that's that's really how I would feel about it. But it's a very, very difficult time. And, and I understand why people are frustrated. And it's really dangerous that you have people whipping that up and yeah. blaming immigrants and not government policy. 
If there was, if there was one thing, and it's probably too, maybe looking at it too simplistically or whatever, but if there was one thing the government could do in the morning that would make a significant impact, what would it be? I think it would be to introduce the use it or lose it uh, legislation that they have in Barcelona, where they say to owners of vacant and derelict properties, you have six months to have someone in your property renting it or sell it, uh, or else we're going to take it off you and, and put a tenant in there, put someone in there um, and use it. And I think that would, there's a massive amount, as I said, massive amount of vacant and derelict property. And I mean, that should be enforced. If that was enforced, you would see really quickly that housing coming on board. And you have to provide the funding. If some people say, well, we can't do anything with it, well, then either sell it or, you know, we could, there are schemes the government makes available funding uh, where owners of properties can do it up and then lease it out as social housing. You know, they're good ideas, but there's more funding needed to go in them. Yeah, she's never heard the Barcelona deal not use it or lose it. That's very interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, there are there's things been done. You know, other cities like Amsterdam. Um, you know, the other thing I would do is set up a state construction company. I just think that's a, a thing we have. That to seems do. like the that seems like the winner. Like, I mean, if it worked before, I'd, and you're creating jobs at the same time, like, I, I, it seems like a no brainer. But again, as we said, there just seems to be no political will to do these things. As long as like if as you were saying about the four percent um thing that you know the the private investors wanted minimum four percent return as long as they have lobbying people in their in their ear we haven't a hope have we? Well, I think the the only other counter to that is to create that political will through our own lobby, which is public pressure and showing that yeah. people do not want it and and are saying we're not going to accept agree. it. You know, and that's the only challenge that can come to that is showing that the. The people of Ireland say, no, this is not the way it is to be done. And if you want, you know, and the, the more scared they get looking down the line, if they go, we're going to lose our votes about this and people are going to be protesting and disrupting, then you see things change. I think we will see need a general change. strike, Rory. <laughs> a general strike would be no harm at all. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> You've been very good with your time and, and thanks so much. We've been trying to get this over the line for ages. So thanks so much for your time. And uh where, I, where I, was I, doing my, I was doing my best to avoid you, but I really couldn't do it any longer. <laughs> now, Tony Groves made sure you did it. He did, he did. He was electric. He was using electric cattle prod to get me to do it. You know. <laughs> where can anyone find you, Rory, on on the social media channels? So I'm on Instagram and uh, um, Twitter at Rory Hearn. I think it's at Rory Hearn number one on Instagram and. Uh, also, I'm I've joined TikTok as well for my sins. Um, so I'm sticking up videos of that, not of me with dancing. The kids. Uh, but uh, how what you say with the cool kids, with the cool kids, I'm not even pretending. No, I'm just putting up my house and stuff, and people seem to be interested. <laughs> so great. Um, but uh, yeah, and also Reboot Republic is the podcast as well. People can listen to that as well. And uh, Gaffs is the book. And uh, yeah, listen, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. Oh, thank, thank you, Rory, and uh, all the best with Reboot Republic. Congratulations on GAFs as well. Um, and everyone vote for, for, I'll send out the link again when we're publishing. No, it's podcast. done. The votes are closed, unfortunately. Oh, well, this, yeah, this wouldn't be going out the weekend, actually, so it'll definitely be closed. So Yeah, yeah it was closed on Thursday, but uh, not to worry. They can, you know, buy the book. That's spread it. Spread it around. Not just buy it, spread it around. It's available in the libraries as well, in, the, in all Brilliant. the public libraries, I think, and if it's not, Brilliant. get onto your library. So it is available in terms of access and there's, there's, um, I have two, the two last chapters are 
One is 10 things you can do, and the other is about solutions. So I encourage people to take pictures of them, put them up, send them around, spread them around. Put them on your TikTok. That's, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. I'll add that to my list. <laughs> thanks that. so much, Arnie. Rory, thanks All so right. much for your time. Take care. Big thank you to Dr. Rory Hearn there. Pushing out knowledge like it's nothing to him and highlighting shit that really and truthfully he shouldn't have to. But here we are. And uh, thank God we have people like him who highlight the injustices and the bad crack and the shithousery that is going on with Ireland's housing crisis. Um, but yeah, Jesus, look, he's he's doing God's work, as they say. You know what I mean? He is. And, and like I was saying to you before, like, I think his appearances on, on RTE and the likes, it's kind of legitimizing the, the, the crisis because before it, people were just like, oh, it's a political thing. It's a political stunt, all this, that, and the other, when it's not like... Yeah, it's not. And I think, as we discussed with him, it's the unwillingness or what the seeming unwillingness from those in power to to look at it and say, all right, look, it's been wrong. We're going to change it. And they try this underhand bullshit in of stuff that's been called for for years when they do eventually bring it in. They bring it in as if like they're the ones that thought of it, that it wasn't something that was by campaigners three, four years ago. And there's a, there's, there's a, uh, it's disingenuous at best, deceitful, more likely, but just pure shit housery from, from them. And, um, Completely disingenuous. It's like we were saying at the intro where you experienced amazing public transport in Boston. I experienced amazing accessible uh, public transport in, in Stockholm. And you're coming home and you're kind of going, Jesus, if I want to use the train, I have to ring a, ring a head. You know, you know, and as I said to, to Rory when I was in Sweden and I asked if the subway, I said to Carl Fitz, who I was over there with, I said, I'll just ask about the subway because subways tend, tend to have been built in the 30s and the 40s yeah, underground. Yeah. So uh, I know in the London underground, there's they now they've gotten better, but it's sometimes it can be a maze to get your death to your destination. But yeah. she looked at me, they had a they had an act over there, a guarantee act that was put into play in the transport bill where they had to guarantee they'd get people to disability in the, with disabilities to their final destination. So there's three stations in the subway over there that aren't accessible, but they'll try their best to get you in and out. I mean, that's all you're asking for. That, like, I mean, that should be the minimum. You know that should I mean? be the minimum, exactly. Um, so, but yeah. it was a great podcast. I like Rory a lot. I listen to Reboot and I listen to him when he's on the Tortoise Shack as well, so. Um, where, where can anyone listen to to us, Danny? Uh, they can get us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict. Anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast. They simply need to put in the letters W-T-S-P-O-D and you'll find us. You can also get us on the social medias at WTSPod on the Twitter for, for how much longer. Who knows? Thanks, Elon Musk. Yourself and Mero are there as well, at Dan Joe Murray, at American Mania. And uh, we're on the Instagram the same handles and uh, come and interact with us and uh, follow us and like us and give us the attention that we so dearly crave WTSpod.com if you just want the old fashioned website with none of the bells and whistles lovely until next time clear eyes full hearts get loose this way